Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. Today I'm joined by an incredible woman I had the privilege of serving with in the Australian Parliament. Many of the most important policy reforms in Australia's contemporary political history were authored and driven by her, including paid parental leave, an historic increase to the aged care pension, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, and the list goes on. She was pivotal to the national apology to the stolen generations of Indigenous Australians and launched the Stronger Futures policy. When she was first elected in 1996, she was one of only four Labor women in the House of Representatives. By the time she retired from politics in 2019, the Australian Labor Party was well on its way to having women make up half its elected team. That huge change was something she fought for over decades and many women in today's parliament would count her as their inspiration. Jenny Macklin, welcome to a podcast of one's own. Thanks so much, Julia. Great to have you. Now, normally I start these podcasts talking to women about the earliest influences on them and we'll come back to all of that. But I wanted to start with you in a different place. You've released a book entitled Enough is Enough, co-authored with Kate Thwaites, the woman who succeeded you in your electorate of Jagger Jagger. The book begins with Kate's voice and recounts how she felt at a rally on the steps of Parliament House, listening to the words of Brittany Higgins, who courageously spoke about how she'd been raped in Parliament House when she was working as a political staff member. Kate says she channelled her fury at Brittany's treatment and that of women in politics generally into writing this book. What was your motivation in writing it? And can you tell us what you thought and felt when you first heard Brittany speak? Oh, well, there are two young women that have had a lot of impact on me this year. One was Brittany Higgins uh, and the way she has spoken out. And what that's meant to me is really thinking a lot about all of the staff that you and I have had over the many years that we were in the parliament and thinking about um, their experiences and knowing that uh, it often was very, very difficult for them. The second person I really uh, was very shaken up by, actually, was Grace Tame, who is uh, Australian of the Year, a young woman who also has suffered uh, the most horrific abuse And one of the things that she said when she received her Australian of the Year Award was that you must speak out, don't stay silent. And that really reverberated with me because, as you have often said and I've said as well, we've said together, 
that we did tend to stay quiet. We tried to laugh it off. Australians don't like um, moaners or whingers. We're supposed to just take a joke. And I know that uh, you did that. I know that I did that on the many occasions uh, when looking back now, well, I would certainly say uh, I should have spoken out and I didn't. I was very motivated by Grace Tame. I I think uh, she is absolutely right that until we all speak out, then the sort of abuse that uh, she and Brittany Higgins and so many other women experience every single day, that it's just going to continue. So that's probably the number one reason. The second is that there was a lot of debate at the time particularly among women of my generation, that we really hadn't achieved what we should have done for the young women today, that we hadn't made their workplaces safe, that they can't live safely at home and uh, that there's still far too much abuse in our community. Thinking about that, I think that's true. That part of it is true, but it is not the case that there hasn't been huge reform uh, that have benefited women both here in Australia and around the world. And and I wanted to really focus on the opportunity to bring about those changes that do benefit women through the parliament. The parliament is, as we all know, the place where laws get made. And uh, if you're not there to make them, someone else will make them and they won't necessarily be in the interests of uh, women. I'll do anything I possibly can to encourage uh, young women to come forward and to take their rightful place in the parliament to to make the next round of laws that will benefit women. Like you, I've spent a lot of this year reflecting on the past, on the times that I should have said something, and also reflecting on what I didn't see, you know, in terms of treatment of staff, what was happening and I just didn't see and wasn't aware of. So I agree with you. It's been a year to be shaken up, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. If I was to characterise your contribution to the book, it really is along the lines that you've just said. You focus on the reasons why women should indeed must involve themselves in politics, even though the environment seems so hostile. There were times when I was reading it when I was actually smiling because the words you used were words I've used so many times and we've used them together. But I think we both have to acknowledge that it's pretty easy to put the case against politics. A woman could well say to herself, a young woman, why would I fight to get elected to end up in a parliamentary chamber where sexist insults are hurled at me, where the media is focused on how I look, not what I do? where the social media directed at me is just toxic. And then if I have a really good idea, there's every chance a man will claim it as his own. And as Brittany and many others have made clear, it's a workplace where sexual harassment, even sexual violence happens. To a young woman who said that, what would you reply? There is no greater sense of joy and achievement than standing in the House of Representatives and moving the legislation to establish the National Disability Insurance Scheme. You were there, I was there, and I think we can now know because of the experience of the creation of this extraordinary change in Australia 
it has changed hundreds of thousands of lives of people with disability and then thousands and thousands more of carers and uh, their families. When you reflect even just for a short moment that uh, you've had something to do with that, it does give you an enormous sense of uh, achievement and joy. Uh, Just this week I read a little article about someone who's going to the Paralympics and he said what uh, the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, had done for him and how it had changed his life and, you know, we should all focus on this great thing that was now part of Australian society and I thought, That's pretty good. (laughs) That is pretty good. So it's the power for change. But I guess a young woman might also say, what about the obstacles in terms of work and family life? I mean, obviously, Parliament's not the only place uh, where women have to struggle and juggle work and family life. But it is a workplace that currently requires members of Parliament to be away from their homes for around half the year. And that's just attending the Parliament the more senior you get in politics, the more the other travel demands come on you. One of the things that really struck me in the book was when Kate talked about how she's one of six Labor women parliamentarians who have had babies since the last election. How hard is it for families to make that kind of lifestyle work and how did you make it work? It is hard. If anyone was to ask me what was the worst part of the whole 23 years, it was being away from my children Uh, and as you say it just gets harder and harder as you get more senior because you have to you have to travel you have to you know it's a very big country there are a lot of places in Australia you have to go for a good period I was the Minister for Indigenous Affairs so I had to go to a lot of very remote parts of Australia I was on the National Executive of the Labor Party that was Not all that much fun. But uh, once again, you know, you can't leave it up to the middle-aged men. That meant more time away from home. And uh, that was the hardest thing of all, no question. I hated it sometimes. You were very supported by your partner, and Kate talks about that in the book too. She talks about her partner, Daniel, taking time off work to care for their baby son so she can continue her political involvement there as a Member of Parliament. You had your first child in the 1980s, and your partner, Ross, then a school teacher, battled the education department so he could take a year off to care for your newborn. This was obviously an extraordinary thing for someone to ask at the time, for a man to ask, can I have time off to care for my child? It shows, I think, that there's been change in the period in between about perceptions of roles. I think a man would find it much easier now to go to his employer and say, I'm going to be the principal carer of our newborn but a lot more needs to change, doesn't it? Where do you think we are on that and what do we need to do next? I do think there has been change. I mean, this was a whole generation ago, 40 years ago, that baby was born of mine and uh, Ross was asking for time off without pay. He wouldn't have dreamt of asking for time off with pay. Where to next is really that the paid parental leave scheme that we put in place, which has been absolutely wonderful for Australia to finally have, really needs to go to the next step. And I think that is to recognise 
the role of dads as well as mums, even though it is paid parental leave. The fact is most of the leave is taken by mothers. The evidence from Scandinavia is if you want uh, fathers to take the leave, you really need a use it or lose it provision, make the leave available to the dads and say to them, this is here for you so that you can spend time with your newborn baby. But if you don't use it, you'll lose it. I'd also give a real shout out to some of the big businesses, so certainly in Australia, where they are really stepping up and providing leave to mothers and fathers separately. And we are now seeing this change in attitude because I think in Australia, the the lead is really coming from business. And just talking about, you know, Australia compared to the rest of the world and maybe Parliament House compared to business, one question I get asked a lot because obviously when I'm overseas, people are aware of the misogyny speech and all the rest of it. So one question I get asked a lot is, you know, is this about Australia? So the person (laughs) asking me is just, you know, assuming that Australia is worse in terms of, you know, macho culture than many other parts of the world. And that always kind of rankles with me as a very proud Australian. But how do you feel about that? Oh, I don't think think Australia is any worse than anywhere else. This sort of culture, I think, unfortunately, is um, everywhere and in some some parts of the world, of course, much worse. I mean, we have still have some parts of the world, which you're very familiar with, where uh, women ca- still can't vote, still can't stand for parliament. So at least we have the capacity to vote, to stand for parliament, And we shouldn't take any of those rights lightly. Really, it's not that long in the long span of history that uh, women have even had those rights in Australia, but they have now. As you said in your introduction on the Labor side of politics, we now have half of the representatives of women as a result of the decision that we made. You were a big part of it. I was part of it in the early 1990s to introduce a quota system. It's taken all those 30 years, though, to get this change. And I think that demonstrates just how hard these structural changes, and they are structural changes. A lot of people talk about the need to change the culture. Well, I think you actually need to get a bit more specific and say, well, what specifically are we going to change? And I think one of the great things we did was make that structural change that's now brought about uh, almost equal representation of men and women in not just the national parliament in Australia, but also in the state parliaments. It's a very, very significant achievement. But does that mean that there isn't sexism rife inside the parliaments? Of course not. But I do think that it makes a difference. I think the numbers matter. As you know, numbers count for a lot in politics. If you haven't got them, you're not going to win. The men have figured this out, of course, not surprisingly. And so uh, they'll come to the women and seek their uh, support and the women will recognise that they have power in their numbers. And um, I think that will progressively see policy change that benefits women. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And even during my time in Parliament, you could feel the difference it was making as more and more women came into our side of politics. I mean, what is to be regretted is that the conservative side of politics has always rejected that sort of structural intervention and consequently the growth in the number of women on their side of politics has been far, far slower. So something there to think about because more women at critical mass do change culture over time. When I first came in, as you mentioned, there was only four women on our side in the House, but there were a lot of women on the Liberal side, but most of them were in marginal seats, basically seats that are not held by very big margins by one party or the other. And so, of course, when the swing comes at the next election or the one after that, in in this case it was 1998 when you came in, there was a big swing to Labor. We won 20 seats and most of the people who went out were women in very um, marginal seats on the Liberal side. So, yes, you've got to get uh, more women as a mass, but we've also got to really make an effort to see them in safer seats, in seats where they're not going to lose uh, when the swing comes so that they get the experience uh, and they're going to then be able to be senior cabinet ministers. Absolutely. And what about the comparison with business? When Brittany's revelations became public, there were a number of women in the Australian business community who said, look, we've still got many things to do to get to gender equality in business, but the culture in business is now well in advance of that in Parliament House. There's not the same you know, acceptance of the intermingling of alcohol, of business and social occasions, the way not everybody, and I think one of the things that probably um, struck you, it certainly struck me, was whilst people did talk about the boarding school atmosphere of Parliament House and the availability of alcohol in the evenings, we certainly know the other side of that coin, which is there would have been plelenty of nights you and I were still at our desks at 11pm waiting for the Parliament to rise and we're drinking coffee and doing paperwork, not out socialising. So there's two sides of it, but there is a bit of a boarding school effect because people are away from home. Do you think you know, Parliament can learn some things from business about cultural change and perhaps even some of these structural changes that we're talking about? Yes, I do. And probably the best uh, source for this is Julia Banks and the book that she's recently written for the purposes of your listeners. She held a, a seat for the Liberal Party. She was a member of the Liberal Party, was a very marginal seat. She took the seat off Labor then she went through some really terrible experiences. She'd come from business and, in her words, she was really shocked. Now, she's got much more business experience than I do and so listening to her I think really reinforces your point. And I do think that it's not because, you know, all these business people are nice guys. I think it is because there are proper processes that have been put in place in business, proper complaints processes, proper employment processes, all the things that we know don't exist in the parliament. And we talk about some of these in the book. One of them is to have an independent place where staff can go to 
make a complaint. At the moment, they have to go to the Department of Finance, which is hardly independent. And uh, so that actually has been agreed by the government. We'll see how that goes, getting that implemented. I think that's good. I think having much more transparent processes about people's uh, employment engagement These are the sorts of issues that give people clear rights at their workplaces and clear places to complain. I also think, though, and this hasn't been talked about as much, we do raise it in the book, and you would be aware of where this is at in the United Kingdom, which is, of course, it is shocking the number of staff who've been bullied and abused But it's also shocking the number of members of parliament who've been treated like this as well. And there's certainly not been any processes established to enable these matters to properly be addressed. Sometimes there's been uh, inquiries that have been held by their own political parties. So there's an example recently against the person who is now the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. And when the allegations were made against him, his own party, the National Party, did an investigation. Not surprisingly, the woman concerned uh, did not think that this was an independent or thorough process of investigation. So what's the way in which we make sure that women in our political parties, women who are elected as members of parliament, are able to make complaints and be heard. And then the next step, which uh, the recent UK inquiry has gone to, uh, which we call for in our book, is what's the method of accountability where uh, uh, serious allegations of bullying or harassment are made against a member of parliament? We've just seen serious matters raised against the New York governor. They have had a process uh, that they're going through. We don't have any of those sorts of processes uh, in the Australian Parliament. Um, And serious allegations have been made against both current members of Parliament and previous members of Parliament that you and I both know, none of which, in my view, have been attended to properly and uh, none of these men have been held to account. And that's a shame. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No, there's some very profound changes that are needed. So, I mean, we've talked about more women in parliament, these accountability structures, there's more that could be done on the work and family life side and indeed using the technology we're using now could bring some more flexibility. Another big part, I think, is the support structures amongst women. And it's just, you know, one of the delightful things that comes out of the book is the fact that Kate and so many other women in Parliament are really reaching out and supporting each other. I think that makes the journey so much easier. And that that does happen when there's more women. Just having more 
women around, uh, particularly in their situation, other women who are having babies, so who are going through the same sort of experiences that they're going through, the way in which they can talk about, you know, some of the things that really get up your nose, you know, the way some men stride around the place looking like they own the joint, just some of those basic things that uh, enable them to have a little bit of a laugh together and some provide some support to each other. I think they're very, very important. There were times that I know you will recall when we did have cross-party action particularly on issues of reproductive health. So obviously not all women in all parties because in each of the parties in the Australian Parliament there are women who don't necessarily agree on, for example, the availability of RU486. So what happened on that occasion, as you will remember, was that the Minister for Health He wanted to keep the power to make this drug available or not. A group of women across the major part or across all of the parties uh, came together and said, this is not a decision for a male health minister to decide what will happen to our bodies. This should be a matter that is decided by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the body in Australia that decides whether medicines are safe. If they decide it should be safe, then it should be available. And it was this group of cross-party women that came together on this uh, very significant issue. And there were other occasions when groups of us used to very, very quietly talk across party, particularly on these reproductive matters. So that really matters to women coming together when they can, given the many divisions in politics and different uh, value systems and mindsets. I'm going to move now from contemporary politics to take you right back to the beginning. We're turning back the clock. You grew up in country Victoria. Can you tell us what your family environment was like and what was the first time that you thought to yourself, hmm, I reckon I'm being treated differently just because I'm a girl? Well, I was very lucky to grow up in, you know, a very happy family. We played a lot of sport. Education was very, very strongly supported. My parents, uh, you know, both of them were born in the middle of the Depression, both one of nine children, so life had not been easy for them. But they really wanted my sister and I to have uh, every chance And I don't really recall in the house, in the home, ever thinking I can't do anything. At school, I think it was more to do with the times. So I remember my first uh, public speech was when uh, Germaine Greer published The Female Eunuch and uh, gave a speech at school. This is in a rural country high school about the female eunuch, as my mother said at the time, you know, I don't know if this is going to go over all that well. It was the time. I mean, I'm a little older than you. It was an incredible time to be a girl coming of age. The women's movement was alive and fighting and it was a very, very exciting time. And, of course, uh, as I went from school to university, The Whitlam government, uh, the Labor government was elected after a very long time of only conservative governments. 
it was just an incredible time. I'd, I'd gone to live in Japan as an exchange student, so I'd had my whole country mindset opened up to the world, discovered that uh, there were people who didn't speak English, there were people who didn't look like me, and it just changed my life forever. I got involved, I got heavily involved in the first, one of the first women's refuges uh, where we as um, members of Women's Liberation came together to support women who were trying to uh, escape from family violence. So it was just um, an incredible time to be a young woman growing up. And clearly uh, this experience seared into you that government matters, that government makes a difference. And your first job was in Parliament House. Uh, It wasn't as a politician, it was a researcher in the library. Did you go there because you were attracted to this political ability to make change? Uh, Well, in fact, my first job was at the university in Canberra and uh, then I saw this job in the parliamentary library and thought, you know, that'd be a good place to go and start providing uh, advice to members of parliament. And as it happened, that's where I met Brian Howe, who later became the Deputy Prime Minister in the Hawke government, Hawke and Keating governments. He really became a great mentor to me. Uh, And one of the things I suppose I'd say to young women who are thinking about uh, politics and how to do it, well, one is take every opportunity that comes your way, but you'll meet people along the way who will really, over time, guide you and help you and Brian Howe is certainly that sort of person for me. I wrote a paper for him. I can tell you it wasn't a bestseller. It was on the electricity pricing in the aluminium industry. (laughs) One for the aficionados. (laughs) (laughs) Extremely, extremely dull but uh, at the time but of course he became uh, in the Hawke government uh, he really became a very, very significant reformer in social security. And he really showed me how you could do good policy making through good research, knowing your history. I suppose that's one of the other things looking back, of course, I didn't know at the time. Many of the reforms that I was fortunate enough to be part of in your government and Kevin Rudd's government were reforms that started in the Whitlam years. So all of these things are essential parts to delivering a big policy change. Make sure you have a Prime Minister that supports the idea. And along this road, so from, you know, parliamentary research into uh, more actively working with the Labor Party, with Brian, you were a very senior uh, political staff member, a policy leader for the Labor government. But at what point did you say, I'm in this track, which is where I'm using my brain to support the work of politicians? At what point did you say, I actually want to be a politician? Yeah, that's a really good question because I didn't really think I would ever go into Parliament. That wasn't my view of myself. I was a researcher. Uh, I was a policy writer. I did a national review of Australia's health system for Brian Howe when he was the health minister in the early 1990s. And then he decided it was time for him to retire. 
1996 and I thought someone else needs to step up and I was at that time in my life which I think a lot of a lot of people in their early 40s, I was in my early 40s at the time, are thinking, well, I've done all these things so far. What am I going to do for the next part of my working life? And so I took the plunge and stood for election. And so was the transition to being, you know, on stage rather than back of stage, was it a hard one? Very difficult. I can still remember today the first time I stood on the street and asked for a vote. And I found that very, very difficult. I just thought this is so, you know, it's a little bit rude to to be so forward and, you know, but you've got to do it. You have to put yourself forward, don't you? And you have to be available and you have to allow people to know you. That too I found very, very difficult. I certainly didn't want anyone having anything to do with my children And uh, I remember my youngest coming home from school. He was about six or seven at the time. And he said to me, Joe's mum needs help. And I thought, oh, no, we're not not doing it this way. We're not having Joe's mum talk to my little seven-year-old at school. So I I got even more. I mean, I was very happy to support Joe's mum, but not by a little boy at school. It's a hard balance to find, but I was very, very protective of the children. And so hard to go to the front of the stage and and ask for votes to be putting yourself out there, and I know what you mean by that. How did you find the competitive aspects of politics too? I mean, inherently, politics is a competition. You contend against members of your political party to be the one who's chosen to uh, go for election for a seat. Then in the election itself, you run against other candidates. Someone wins, someone loses. Obviously, uh, you had a grand track record of winning in Jagger Jagger, but that meant that others lost. And then in Parliament House itself, I mean, not everybody gets the positions they want. You need to put yourself forward. You and I have, in fact, been in competition over our political careers. Coming from a feminist background, how did you figure all of that, the ability to deal with the competitive aspects? I think that's a really important question. And as you know, there's been a recent uh, program here in Australia called Misrepresented, where you, you, you made a terrific contribution. And one of the issues that's raised is this question of ambition and, you know, the way in which um, women and girls are told, you know, not that this happened to me, I have to say, but it's often said to girls, you know, you shouldn't be ambitious, you know, it's not a ladylike thing to do. Well, I really don't accept that. You have to be ambitious. You're not going to put yourself forward to an electorate and ask them to vote for you if you don't want to be elected. You have to have that ambition in the first instance to be elected. Certainly in 1996, I could have easily lost. We had a huge swing against Labor. I was very lucky to win. So it was a tough election. And there were others over my 23 years, eight elections, there were others, some good, some very difficult. So it's scary when you think you're going to lose. Be proud and strong about your ambition because you won't make it if you're, if you're not. And then you, you are going to come up against 
other women. You and I were in that situation. Well, that is a good thing for you and I to talk about because as a feminist, some women might say, oh, well, one woman shouldn't take on another. Well, I, I don't accept that. I think that every woman should, if they have the ambition to want to be the leader and to take to take on that uh, task, then go for it. We're not going to get female leaders if we don't have that situation. Obviously, I'm not going to say it was easy at the time. It wasn't easy. It was very painful. But one of the things that you and I talked about and I, I, I think uh, enabled us to work together on so many good things afterwards was to say, okay, that happened, you're the leader, I want to be part of the government that you're leading and I want to do these things in social security or in disability reform, whatever it might be. And the only way that I could do that is to be a participant, to basically say what's done is done and uh, to really see where the, ne- where the next opportunity lies. I suppose the other thing, Julia, is that, and you would have seen this too, I saw so many people get very bitter uh, when they had lost. You talk about a woman taking on another woman as you did with me. Mostly it's, of course, men doing it to each other. In my uh, experience, many of them became very, very bitter and twisted and it ruined their lives. I didn't want that to happen to me. I didn't want to be that sort of person. I had things I wanted to do and so we were able to talk about it and um, get on with it. I think the competition between women, I mean, it happened to, you know, with us, It it will with 50% women in the Labor Party, it's going to happen more often. It's going to happen across parties. I mean, we've had a, a, you know, the Queensland state election was a, woman versus a woman from the two principal political parties to see who would lead the state. So I don't think we can shy away from that, but I think there are, you know, some things to think about in terms of how you deal with each other and also how you deal with defeat and loss. And and you and I at different times in our political careers have had to front up to that and what role you want to play, you know, going forward and whether you want to let a hard knock, uh, even a really hard knock sort of distort the rest of your life. Mm. So I'm not a believer that men and women's brains are somehow wired differently. They're not, but we're socialised differently and maybe uh, part of our socialisation and perhaps coming from uh, the feminist movement was to keep seeking the way to find a, make a contribution rather than obsessing about things gone. Well, I'd hope that to be the case and I hope by us talking about it, you know, you can say to the women concerned, you can find a way through this and still deliver big reforms uh, because in the end that's why many of us, I think most people, go into politics. They don't always get the chance and if you do get the chance, you've really got to take it. You've got to do the hard work. You've got to make some hard decisions about whether or not you keep going after, as you call it, a hard knock. But if I'd left the parliament, I wouldn't have been able to introduce the big reforms that I was able to do. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, unimaginable to think back to that time and our time in government and not to have you at the centre of that policy drive. I'm going to turn now to contemporary circumstances. I'm talking to you today from London. You're in Melbourne in lockdown. Uh, How are you doing during this time? I know it's a difficult period for everyone. How are you doing generally in your life post-politics? And what do you think about the world we're going to emerge into when the pandemic is finally, finally, finally in the rear vision mirror? Could it be a better world for women? Uh, I think it's been a very hard time for women, a very hard time. Uh, The young women who I've had working with me over the last couple of years on some big projects I was doing, for those women who had children at school or children at home, and some of them had both, you know, so they were needing to homeschool, look after toddlers and do a job and uh, manage their relationships uh, and all the other things that we all have to do. So for someone of my age, it's actually in many ways easier. I don't have children at home anymore. I've got grandchildren and we couldn't see them. So that was difficult, but it's not, you feel you can't compare to what it's like, particularly for these young families. I think it's been extremely hard for them. And then, of course, on top of that, for many, many people, particularly who are working in the hospitality sector, once again, for some of us, um, we're used to the lockdowns now. We we know how to use the Zooms for all the work that we do. It's become part of the way we operate. But uh, if you work in hospitality or if, if you have to go out to work, if you work in a hospital or... Uh, so many places. If you're in hospitality, of course, you're out of work. So for many of many of those uh, people, the majority of whom are women, financially, it's extremely difficult. If you're in a hospital, once again, large numbers of women, we know that they're exposed uh, to the virus. So it's a very, very hard time for a lot of people. The little bit of research that's been done in Australia at least, uh, is that uh, the load is falling more heavily on women, that they're doing more of the homeschooling, more of the childcare at home. So I think think it has been a very, very hard time. A tough time indeed. And things to think about for the future, about how we value caring work, uh, how we distribute work in the home how we can take this technology to make a difference. I do think that that debate about the value of the caring role is being talked about more, not as much as I think it should be. One of the next rounds of reform that I think is absolutely essential is that we actually get equal pay for childcare and aged care workers. You and I were part of a big equal pay decision for community sector workers, and that was a really big deal and a great uh, decision led by the Australian Services Union. But uh, we need those uh, campaigns supported and the legislation changed, I would say, to enable these decisions to be pursued through Fair Work Australia. Yes, it's uh, one of the things that should be talked about and their role should be recognised, 
a lot of people in the health sector, for example, are saying, thanks very much for recognising us, but actually we'd like to be paid properly. Yeah, fair fair enough. And it's one thing to go out and do the, you know, clapping on the streets for people who are doing the caring work, uh, but we do have to make sure that that uh, translates into real respect and fair treatment, including fair pay. I'm going to turn now to the final questions. I always put a fact to my guests to respond to. And the fact for you is the World Economic Forum rankings of gender equality have New Zealand at number four and Australia at 50th. Shameful. It really is shameful. The worst part of it in Australia, I think, is the level of violence against women which just continues to increase. We really have not done anywhere near enough to make sure that women can live safely at home and their children, that they can be safe at work, that they can be safe in the community. If I had to choose an issue on which uh, we really have to dramatically uh, improve, it would be that one. What's the worst misogyny you've ever dealt with? Being screamed at with abuse by horrible, very, very tall, large man. In the parliament? In the parliament. If you could change one thing overnight for women, what would it be? Oh, well, as, as I just said, it would be to address the horrific levels of violence. We, as feminists, we've done great things, sex discrimination legislation, paid parental leave, no-fault divorce, all of these terrific reforms, but the levels of violence continue to grow and Australian women and children should not be subject to that violence. Virginia Woolf says, the man looks the world full in the face as if it were made for his uses and fashioned to his liking. The woman takes a sidelong glance at it, full of subtlety, even of suspicion. Jenny Macklin says... Well, I don't think I do that. (laughs) I'm glad to say that I think I've changed. I think I may have been like that when I nervously first decided to stand for the parliament. But I think I learnt to stand up straight and look uh, the world straight in the face and say we're going to do these things that need to be done. You most certainly did and thank you for sharing all of that in this conversation. Great to see you. Podcast of One's Own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Thank you.